Thank you, worship team. Uh, at this time, our children are dismissed. Let me pray. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the words that we sang. And Lord, we pray that that's not just an expression, but we would understand that you, our lives are centered on you, that you are our anchor. You're the, what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And we pray that as we, we, those words would become true in our lives, that you would be the center of everything in our lives. I pray now as we look at your word that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was reading this science article the other day. I don't read a lot of science articles, but some of the popular science things sometimes pique my interest a little bit. And there was this writer, she was thinking about the possibilities of there being life on another planet, maybe in, an, in the same galaxy, maybe in a distant, different galaxy. Now, she kind of grossly overestimated how rare and unique and special all the circumstances that make Earth so special are. But besides from that, what was interesting is what she was kind of despaired because she thought, you know, even though there's probably lots of other planets out there with lives, with, with intelligent life, that is, the chances of us ever crossing paths or communicating one, with one another are slim to none. And what, what was interesting that she was talking about feeling alone in the universe. Meanwhile, she's living on a planet with eight billion people and she feels alone and puts a solace in the idea of making some vague contact with people trillions of miles away. And she felt lonely because of that. And what I think it shows is that um, there's this universal need for significance, for meaning, that we're all seeking satisfaction and we can't rest with the idea that we can't have satisfaction. We're all looking for it. Even people who don't found, found their beliefs on, a, on the belief of God are looking for satisfaction and living in such a way that they expect the world to provide them with this meaning and with this satisfaction. Now, if you've been here a while, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and as we move through this book of 1 Corinthians, we're now in chapter 4. And last week and this week, we're doing a mini-series within the book that we're calling Satisfaction in a Dissatisfied World. Satisfaction in a Dissatisfied World. So last week, Pastor Marv took us through the beginning of that section, chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. And then this week, I'll be taking us, picking up in verse 8 of chapter 4. And I think the big idea that we see in this passage is that because true satisfaction only comes through Christ, we should be imitators of him. Because true satisfaction only comes through Christ, we should be imitators of him. Now, while the Corinthian church had the source of true satisfaction, they sought satisfaction the same way that the world seeks satisfaction. And you know what it left them with? It left them dissatisfied. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibit us, exhibited us apostles as last of all 
like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We, we have become and still are, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though they w I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come, you, come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, I believe that in this passage, it's a pretty long passage, there are ten comparisons that we can make between the satisfied and the dissatisfied. If we seek satisfaction in our relationship to Christ, we will have it. But if we seek satisfaction in other things, uh, we, will be, we will end up dissatisfied. So the first comparison of the satisfied and the dissatisfied, the satisfied are content with little earthly treasure, the dissatisfied always want more. The satisfied are content with little earthly treasure, the dissatisfied always want more. Now Paul said in a later letter that he wrote to Timothy that he spoke of in this passage, uh, he said, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now we, all, we know the idea that getting what we want often leaves us dissatisfied. It's almost cliche to talk about, like, right? The little kid who gets the very thing he wants for Christmas and it doesn't make him happy. And adults, we do the same thing. We set our eyes on something that we want. We obtain it and it doesn't bring us the joy or happiness that we wanted. It doesn't fulfill the true desires of our hearts. See, compared to Paul, the Corinthians could live it up a little bit. Right? They could live it up a little bit. We'll see that in chapter 11, they weren't even willing to share food with others that didn't have as much nice things to eat. And more than just being selfish, they were seeking to show off to one another. They didn't just want to have the nice things. They wanted the nice things because of the status and the recognition that would go with those things. You see, the satisfied embrace a theology of the cross. The dissatisfied hold to a theology of self-glory. The satisfied um, embrace a theology of the cross. The dissatisfied hold to a theology of self-glory. 
Now, early in this letter, earlier in this letter, Paul spoke of the wisdom of the cross, of Christ crucified. Paul didn't just theorize about dying to self and living with Christ and living to Christ. He sought to live as Jesus lived. He was willing to suffer, even to die himself, to go without basic necessities in order to advance the kingdom of God. Now, I think there are parallels here to what Paul said to a letter to the Philippian church, where he said in chapter 2 in, in his letter to the Philippians, um, though he was in the form of God, that's Jesus he's talking about, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul, he was speaking of himself in this letter to the Corinthians, and Apollos, and he used this, this illustration where it said he was sentenced to death as a spectacle. Now, he was alluding to the Roman Colosseum, right, with the gladiators and the, the battles to the death. So he was alluding to that, and he was speaking of those being marched out at, like, the very end. Like, not the good stuff that everybody came to see, but the leftovers at the end who were just marched out to a certain death at the hands of a gladiator. And, and then Paul also mentions being viewed as the scum of the earth. He would endure persecution and he would bless those that spoke badly of him. And he even mentions the physical labor that he did as a tent maker. That was his kind of day job. And because the Corinthians, they looked down on labor with your hands and work and some of the hard things. So, so they would look down on him, him being this big leader, being just a tent maker. I don't know what, you, what, what desk job was like in the first century or what you did if you didn't work with your hands, but, you know. In any case, they looked down on different people based on the type of jobs that they did. You see, the Corinthians, they weren't living into who they were called to be as followers of Christ. Now, we are fortunate to live in a time and place where we don't typically, are go we're not going to typically suffer the way Paul would suffer for the gospel. But nevertheless, the satisfied, they bless others when criticized. The dissatisfied, they get defensive when challenged. The satisfied, bless others when criticized. The dissatisfied, get defensive when challenged. Now, when others speak poorly or even slanderously of believers, is our response to endure the persecution, maybe entreat if we are slandered, See, the word entreat in Greek, it could be translated as appeal gently. It's a gentle response with respect towards the person saying the thing. See, oftentimes we believe that we have to set the record straight, right? In our social media-driven world, we're more, we're more aware of negative things that people say about what we believe, even slanderous things that they say about people that aren't true. And there are times when we, we may need to entreat gently those who say those things. But do we bless those who curse us? That's a lot. That's asking a lot. Or do we go on social media to grumble and vent, like, oh, the things in the world make me so mad, and I just got to let everybody know, and oh, it's unfair. That's, I know that's that tendency. I want to do that sometimes. You see, when we choose to speak up, do we first spend time in prayer discerning what the Holy Spirit would have us say? Is our attitude one of presuming the very worst of the people who say things that irk us? 
what would it look like if we instead prayed a blessing over that person that irks us? Maybe justly irks us. Perhaps we said something kind to them. Is our attitude one of entitlement in which we need to show the world that we Christians aren't going to put up with any nonsense? And I think too often that's the, the, the stance of the church. We've got to show everybody that, hey, don't mess with us because we're the ones who are right. And the, the truth is the satisfied endure persecution for the kingdom. The dissatisfied retreat, retreat when trouble comes. The satisfied endure persecution for the kingdom. The dissatisfied retreat when trouble comes. Now, when it comes to end times and persecution, we tend to fall into one of two camps as believers. On the one hand, we step back, we're like, oh, it'll never come here to America. You know, we'll never endure real persecution. Yeah, they won't let us put up a nativity scene in the public square, but, you know, we're not going to actually have to suffer for our faith. It'll never come here. And on the other side, we can fall into the other camp where we're just theorizing and worried, and, oh, this thing over here, it could be this, and this thing over there, it could be that. And we're reading all these things about the end times and what it could mean. And we're, we're, we're angry, and we're fearful, and we're scared. And I, I think both, I think we need to find, land somewhere in the middle. You know, on the one hand, can't we avoid being just completely oblivious and be aware of the signs of the times and be aware of the things going on in the world and be wise? Yes. But can we also do so with the peace and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, giving us that peace as we see the world and things going on in the world that understandably alarm us, can we at the same time walk in the peace and the joy and be the aroma of Christ in a dying world? Because we know how things are going to turn out at the end. You see, when persecution comes, and it will come, whether in our lifetimes or in the next others' lifetimes, but it's coming. Persecution's coming around the world. When it does, will we continue to follow Christ or will we step back and retreat to avoid persecution? Would we, would we be willing to lose our jobs? Would we be willing to, to do without things we need? Would we be willing to really suffer if it came to that for the kingdom of God? Or could we just kind of like, you know, embrace just a little bit of Christianity where we can step back and not rock the boat and people will leave us alone? You see, the satisfied are content serving the king. The satisfied are content to serve the king. The dissatisfied manipulate for position. Now, in verse 8, Paul, Paul sarcastically calls the Corinthians, he calls them kings. In verse 14, Paul mentions that they had countless guides. See, while Paul had been their spiritual follower, a spiritual father, at least some of these other guides and teachers in their midst were pitting themselves against Paul's teaching. They were arrogant in using the fact that Paul had not been able to visit them yet for a while, to try to turn others against Paul so they could act like kings in, in his absence. See, they did not have a servant's attitude of wanting to serve the true king. They wanted to be in the driver's seat of this local body, and that made Paul a threat to the influence they were seeking to hold on to and not let go of. You see, the Corinthians, they also had some misunderstandings of the kingdom of God in end times. See, the, the kingdom was inaugurated by the coming of Jesus. And so it was a current reality, but it was also a future hope that they were looking to look towards. 
See, the Corinthians were acting like the final reign of God had already begun in the sense that there was nothing more to look forward to. Um, they looked at the fact that they had spiritual gifts as evidence. In a sense, they could just live it up, look at us, look at all we can do, look how great we are, and skip over all of the dying to oneself. See, that's why later in this letter, in chapter 15, in fact, Marv went through chapter 15 on Easter, um, Paul will tell them about the importance of the resurrection from the dead as this future hope. And taking the idea, what they were doing is they were taking the idea of some, uh, in the future, of reigning with Christ as his followers, with Christ being the true king, and they were instead just trying to live it up like kings in the present, in the present. See, while they had those evidence of spiritual gifts, it, it, they were being ignorant, maybe even willfully ignorant, to what the Holy Spirit was trying to do in and through them in a broken world. You see, the satisfied receive wisdom from God. The dissatisfied miss what the Spirit is doing. The satisfied receive wisdom from God. The dissatisfied miss what the Spirit is doing. Now, we talked about this back in chapter 2. Paul had said this. He had said, um, we've received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. He also said that we have the mind of Christ. See, while we have access to this wisdom from God and the mind of Christ, we often miss what the Holy Spirit is doing. Our thoughts are on other things. We're thinking about whatever's on the news and whatever it is that people are worked up about today. Our mind's constantly stuck in the patterns of the world where we're worried and angry and distracted. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be informed people. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care about what happens. We absolutely should. It's just to say we can't allow it to be a distraction from listening to the voice of God, to hearing the Holy Spirit guide and direct us. And the good test is if we're living with a lot of anger and fear, that's an indication that we are too focused on what's happening in the world and not focused enough on uh, Jesus and the things of, of him. See, when we're not satisfied with Christ, we like to distract ourselves in different ways. Sometimes we're focused on our status. We're focused on accumulating things. We're focused on the next project we want to do in our home and the next thing we want to upgrade or the next vehicle or the next vacation or the next thing. We're, we're always thinking about all the stuff we want to do and obtain and have. We can be so distracted by our hobbies, by, by wealth, by just looking at screens all the time. You see, when we're not satisfied with Christ, we will find other things to distract ourselves with. It doesn't mean we need to have our heads bowed from the moment we get down, from we get up in the morning to when we go be to bed at night, but it is to say, or even to say that we can't enjoy things in the world, right? A lot of us will, will enjoy barbecue this weekend, right? But Christ should have the primary and central place in our minds and our hearts, and this means that we're continually seeking to hear from him on a day-by-day -day basis. We're seeking to be close to him. We're seeking to serve him. You see, we need to find our satisfaction in and through Jesus Christ. And it's in that place that we then have the greater discernment of what it is that God is doing, where he is at work, where he is leading us, because our mind is set on him. You see, the satisfied shine together to glorify Christ. The satisfied shine together to glorify Christ. The dissatisfied 
are threatened when others shine. The dissatisfied are threatened when others shine. Now, the Corinthians, they really wanted to appear wise. They wanted to be seen as special, as the real cool church, right? They wanted to see themselves on a higher plane than others if they had certain spiritual gifts. They could look down on other people. When others received recognition, see, this was a threat to them and their prestige. That's why, that's why they were challenging Paul's authority. It wasn't merely that Paul was preaching, uh, giving them a hard teaching on suffering for Christ's sake. Paul and, and also Apollos, who he mentions, were threats to their desire for status and influence over others. It was almost like they just had to disagree with him no matter what he said because he was a threat to them being the big deal. And they didn't want to be under his teaching. You see, we too are often, I think, sometimes jealous of the gifts of others. And we can see them as a threat to our, to our self-security. That other person who maybe has similar gifts to us, except they're just better at it. Ooh, that makes us angry, right? We want to be the ones recognized. We want to be the best. We want the praise of people. But Paul was modeling for them a humility in which the shining of others is a source of joy. I think, parents, we can understand a certain concept a bit. You know, if our kids grow up and outshine us in some way, or surpass us in a way, we can take some pride in that, right? If little Michael, he's in the nursery, little Michael grows up and he can sing and play guitar better than his dad, you know, it'll certainly be, it'll, it'll reflect back on me a little bit, right? Hopefully you'll have a call to ministry if that's the case, because uh, there's the saying that if... Uh, the musician is a Latin word for unemployed, but I regress, digress. But anyway, um, the point being that um, there is a little bit of self-centeredness when we reflect upon the shining of our children or our family members. But we, if our chief goal is to glorify Christ, we, 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 we are excited when others who can't reflect back on us in some way shine for God's glory. We can celebrate when someone else's kid does something for the kingdom. Um, because ultimately we're satisfied in Christ and we want to see him glorified. The satisfied are content also to be fools for Christ. The dissatisfied are tethered to others' validation. The satisfied are content to be fools for Christ. The dissatisfied are tethered to others' validation. Now, Paul indicated in verse 10 that he and Apollos were fools for Christ. And Paul had made peace with the fact that if he truly lived for Christ, his lifestyle and behavior would be viewed as foolish. Now, if we go to church sometimes, and otherwise we live like the rest of the world, others won't think we're that weird or whatever, and we can kind of receive the validation of others. But the more that our lives begin to be different and look different, we begin to invite ridicule, right? They kind of leave us, people kind of leave us alone if they see we're just like them and we just have this church thing on the side. But if we really start making sacrifices and we really start living for the kingdom, they're going to think we're a little bit weird and we're a little bit strange, right? We don't like that. We don't want to be, a, we don't want to appear strange. We don't want to appear foolish. But if we're validated and we were uh, satisfied with Christ. If we're not, we will be tethered to others' validation. 
the opinions of others, they become an idol that we serve. We feel mo more okay when others are okay with us and they respect us. But the thing is, it never really leaves us truly satisfied because isn't that respect of the world conditional, right? They're happy with us as long as we don't outshine them, right? Because if we outshine them in some way, then, 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 they, be, then they become jealous of us and because we, we are stepping on their toes and their sense of um, status. So we're never secure in the satisfaction that comes from the respect of others because it's always conditional. You see, the satisfied, they have behaviors that match their speech. The dissatisfied talk a big game. The satisfied have behaviors that match speech. The dissatisfied talk a big game. Now, Paul said that when he comes, he wants to see not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Not their talk, but their power. That's what he wants to see. He had said in verse 20 that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Now, regardless of the wisdom of what these guides were pushing in that church, was it just talk? Was there evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work in their lives? Were their lives and those they served being transformed, or were they just pushing out a lot of hot air and a lot of impressive-sounding speech? You see, they were living like kings, not those placing themselves as servant, servants of the true king. And we know Jesus took the nature of a servant and went to the cross for us. And the words that he spoke, as powerful as they were, were also backed up by his actions. There was not a discrepancy between what he said and what he did. They were one and the same. See, even in our, uh, uh, it reminds me of James, who says in uh, James 1.22, to be doers and not just hearers of the word. And he also said in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Now, I do think that the American church is in one sense drowning with knowledge. At the very least, we're drowning with access to knowledge. It's interesting in the day and age when you can get every translation of the Bible on your phone. You can Google words like um, um, some little phrase, you can't remember where the verse is. It pops up on the screen. Oh, yeah, it's in Romans 2, and you look it up. You can buy commentaries. You can buy devotionals. We have so much access to the Word of God, yet we are actually a very biblically illiterate generation. And at the so we're, in one sense, we're drowning with information. But at the, at the same time, we are ignorant of what God's Word uh, says. And um, we, in our religious activities, we always has to have to ask, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives? Do we shine in such a way that we would appear foolish to the world? Or do others just see us as people just like them, just as dissatisfied with all of the things to chase in this world? But we, just, we go to church. But we're just as miserable and dissatisfied chasing after the next thing as they are, and we just have a little bit of Jesus and church on the side. We all have to ask ourselves that question. I have to ask myself that question. See, the satisfied are a model for others. The dissatisfied are an example to avoid. The satisfied are a model for others. The dissatisfied are an example to avoid. Now, I do think it's quite astonishing that Paul could say, be imitators of me. That's quite a bold statement, isn't it? Imagine if I came up here today and said, hey guys, be imitators of me, right? 
That's a pretty bold statement. I, would, I don't know if I'd be able to back it up. But that's a bold statement. It sounds, it sounds um, very arrogant. But Paul was not being arrogant. Um, Paul could say, be imitators of me. He would, he would act, in fact, in chapter 11, he would, he would say this again. He would say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, Paul had placed his satisfaction in Jesus and was willing to model his life after Jesus, including Jesus' meekness, including Jesus' willingness to suffer. You see, Paul's life gave action to the things that he preached about. Not only could he tell the Corinthians about Jesus and about the way that Jesus lived, Paul could demonstrate what it meant to follow Jesus. Could others say the same of us? Could I say, imitate me? Would you be able to say, imitate me? Would our lives be a good model for others to copy and emulate? Now, ultimately, we know that we're all going to fall short, very short, of perfectly modeling the life of Jesus, as Jesus was the only one who lived who was without sin. But, but people, could people notice pattern in our lives that our lives would be an example of what it means to, be, to live like Jesus? Could they learn about how Jesus lived by examining the way we live our lives? Now, I do think it's true. We can sometimes share ways we have blown it. We can share lessons that we have learned, that we've humbly learned in our mistakes. And it's certainly true that our failures can be salvaged to teach a lesson about Christ and our need for him. That's true. And we all have those stories in our lives. But I believe that this passage is challenging us to live our lives in such a way that we could confidently yet humbly tell others, yes, if you do what I'm doing, that's what following Jesus looks like. That's, that's what uh, Paul is challenging them to do. He's not saying that to be arrogant. He's saying that he doesn't, he doesn't, he's trying to give them an example of what it means to glorify Christ and live for Christ. And he, he's able to say, yes, these things that I'm doing, do these kinds of things. And I think that's a challenge for myself today, and I think it's a challenge for all of us. Um, let, let's pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you for setting the perfect example for us. We marvel at how Jesus, who though being God, could humble himself and be obedient to death. Thank you, Jesus, for, for showing us the way and loving us enough to suffer and be persecuted, to hold your tongue when you rightly, rightfully could have spoken in anger against those who mistreated you. And I, Lord, I pray you would give us wisdom and discernment to have minds set on, your, on you and the things that you would have us look at. We repent of, repent of the ways, Lord, that we have made other things our focus, have made other things the, the center of our attention, the center of our thoughts. I pray that it wouldn't be but through works, but through the work of your Holy Spirit as we die to ourselves, that our lives would more and more and more look like yours. Not for our glory, not for the praise of people, but for the praise of you. So we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.